at this point in the retreat, uh, there can be this whole host of a particular genre of questions that arise in the mind that can also carry a whole host of complicated emotions. And it's questions such as, am I really going to get anything truly transformative out of my time here on retreat? (laughs) Am I getting anything from all this? Am I getting any significant insight? I mean, this is insight meditation. (laughs) Where's the insight? Is this retreat really going to significantly change anything in my life? Or at least my heart in some way? And if these questions or kind of questions have arisen for you, you've probably noticed, right, there can be a whole host of different kind of feelings from doubt to fear to worry. Sometimes there's a tightness or collapse a tightness or a striving in one's practice, or the opposite, there can be a collapsing that happens. And I want to begin uh, in regard to these questions to give a simple yes to them. Yes, there is transformation happening. And then... I want to take a next step and go even deeper with these questions because I think there's something fruitful on a deeper level with them. We bring maybe a different way of perceiving them. I hope this, you know, will open up something for you if if this is a genre of questions that arises in your mind uh, that will help you with this path and practice and the remainder of the retreat. So to begin with, the simple yes. Yes, this time on retreat is incredibly transformative. But what comes with that is that in in many ways, um, it's impossible for you to get a, a sense of actually the felt sense of this. And often what the, the problem is, where the problem lies, is it's really in the way the mind is trying to assess and evaluate one's retreat. To me, that's where the hook is. So when these kinds of questions can arise, sometimes the, the frame that I find so helpful is, I'm just planting seeds. And then... You know how seeds are. They're, they're going to sprout when they're ready to sprout. That means they might sprout in a month after the retreat. They might not sprout for a whole year. It might be 10 years before that seed that you planted this morning <laughs> sprouts. I was hoping that would be positive, but I'm seeing that maybe it's not. <laughs> And, and when my mind gets tangled in assessing, tangled in the assessing and evaluating, evaluating, it's like I keep on digging up the seeds to see if they're sprouting or not. And this is, those of you who haven't gardened yet, just so you know, that's usually not a good thing to do with sprouts, <laughs> is to like dig them up and look at them. 
it, it doesn't help the process. And then in regard to insight, I, there was one question about, is, is there any insight arising? So at least in the Mahasi tradition, when, when insight is arising in the heart and mind, it is most often not a big and dramatic experience whatsoever. The mind can be perceiving experience in a way that's filled with insight that isn't being conceptualized by the mind as insight. So insight's happening, but that's not the concept that the mind is placing upon it. Yet it's still happening. It's still carrying the heart and mind toward freedom. So to understand this, the the analogy that works for me is it's like, I think I used this analogy in a different way in a a different talk, but I'm going to use it a little bit differently here. Which is, to me, it's like learning to ride a bike. I don't remember the specific moments when my body was having these insights on how to ride a bike. What I do know is that my willingness to continually get on the bike again and again and again despite my successes and failures, that's what eventually leads me to knowing how to ride the bike. I don't need to know the moments that some kind of aha for the body happens. Because there's an aha for the body that's happening that's not registering in the mind when I'm learning how to ride a bike. I need to focus on staying on the bike, getting on the bike again and again and again. So if you're interested in knowing how to ride the bike of freedom, just keep on getting on the bike. The Dhamma takes care of the rest. And that's why at this point, if you've made it this point on the retreat and all your practice beforehand, um, what becomes primary for this path and practice is not technique, but rather sadha. What's primary is faith, it's confidence. You just need to get back on the bike. So again, don't, don't worry if, quote-unquote, insight is happening or not. Your, your conceptual mind does not know this whole vast realm of how insight courses through these hearts and minds. It thinks it knows, but it doesn't. So that's the simple yes. Yeah, you're just planting seeds. The Dhamma does the rest. To trust that, have confidence in that. And then the other point, just just get back on the bike. The Dhamma, the Dhamma does the rest. So now I'd like to go back to these questions and to go deeper with them. Am I really going to get anything truly transformative from all my time here? No, you're not. (laughs) Am I getting any significant insights? Nope. 
It ain't going to happen. Is this really going to significantly change anything in my life, or at least in my heart? It's not. It really isn't. No, it's, it, this, this, this uh, retreat's not going to do that. It's been interesting. The last couple of years, I have loved starting my retreats and ending my retreats with this kind of spirit, this kind of way of perceiving. No, I'm not going to get anything out of this retreat. Nothing. And then I sense in, here I am at the end of the retreat, and I am the same imperfect, slightly insecure, troubled person that I was at the beginning of the retreat. I didn't get anything from the retreat. It's funny, it's so relieving. Because what that way of perceiving, uh, uh, the way it gets centered in in my heart is that I'm practicing in order to offer something to this world rather than getting anything. That's why I go on retreat. It doesn't matter if it transforms my life. And these retreats, I, I mentioned them to you before, you know, these ones that I've been doing, these self-retreats with my partner, were out on this large, expanse of wild, forested land camping out. And it's this spirit of offering that holds the retreat when we're on retreat. It gets ritualized in a way that I shared with you. This gets ritualized in this practice of sharing the merit my partner and I, we come together in the evening as the the sun is going down, chanting in Pali, the sharing the merit uh, chant. And then we interweave it with this ritualistic uh, offering of water that holds, that holds the merit of our day of practice. And then what do we do with our day of practice? We offer it. We're, 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 we're sending it to all these beings. And sharing it with uh, with even the small beings who directly benefit from water in such a arid landscape. So that's what drives my retreat. That way of holding it, that way of perceiving it, and and then I practice wholeheartedly and diligently, just just the way all of you are practicing here. And then whatever was wholesome in it, then. Ah, then, then that gets offered. As I said, I, I do find this so relieving because it broadens my sense of what it means to be engaged in this path 
in this practice. And when my heart deeply lands that, it, when it's fully engaged in this sense of offering, then it really doesn't matter what I'm getting out of retreat. So I said one way that this can be embodied is this practice of sharing the merit. And and I'll go over this just a little bit when we do the chanting tonight, just a brief form of that. And some of you know that later on in Buddhism, this takes the form of this uh, quality of heart bodhicitta, to, to practice for the benefit of all beings. Like in one rendition of this, this is from a dedication to Red Tara practice. It goes like this, the, throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I've accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and in every future life. And may I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display and the arising in every phenomenon. And then may awakening come in order to be for the liberation of all sentient beings. And I guess I want to be clear here. Like I, I am, when I do these retreats, I'm taking on this extreme perception, right? That all of my time and practice will not change anything whatsoever in my life. And I do want to acknowledge, you might not get the same kind of relief that I do, but... (laughs) (laughs) And in light of that, it makes sense. Like the the Buddha that I discover in these polytexts, he is much more tempered than I am about this. (laughs) For example, he says, you know... uh, A wise person of great wisdom, when they reflect, they reflect of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. So the sense of practicing for oneself and for others. I feel like it it can so much address the the, the tangle that can happen with such questions that arise in the mind. And and I want to emphasize here that this sense of Dharma practice as a kind of offering is so deeply rooted in this tradition Sometimes I think this can be forgotten. So I want to point out, to remember, for the first 500 years following the Buddha's death, 
all of the teachings were transmitted orally. So what does this mean? This means that practitioners, what they did is they memorized the teachings. They memorized all the teachings and then offered them by chanting them to other practitioners who then memorized them and then offered them to the next generation of practitioners. So that's for 500 years, generation after generation after generation of practitioners engaged in offering and giving. That's deep love and devotion to this path and this practice. And then after those first 500 years, it continued to be orally transmitted, orally offered. But there were also, they began to be written down. For example, in current day Sri Lanka, during this time, the teachings, what they would do is they would etch them onto these palm leaves. So that means that monastics would have to gather all these leaves. Then they'd have to dry them. And then you'd have to cure them in a way that made it possible to etch the teachings into those palm leaves. And even after that, those leaves wouldn't survive long in that climate, that tropical climate. It said that sometimes, if they were lucky, they'd last for two years. Sometimes just one year or just six months. So that means that just as they'd finished etching them into palm leaves, they'd have to begin immediately again. And this again was going on generation after generation after generation. Thousands of years. So I want to point out memorizing and chanting and etching the Buddha's teachings uh, was right alongside meditating in ethical conduct and practices like compassion and kindness. This is real dharma practice as an offering to other beings. It gives me a different sense when I slow down and I feel this, like, oh, wow, generations upon generations of practitioners brought this path and this practice to me right here, right now. They brought it to you right here and right now. So how to get a sense of what you're doing on this retreat day after day as an offering? What are some ways, if this is something that that resonates for you? I think, first of all, because I know this feeling, sometimes when I'm on retreat, it can feel like I'm just living in this vacuum. And I can forget that I live in an interdependent web on this teeny little planet on this in this universe. I don't live in a vacuum. 
I live in this intertwined, interdependent web. And what I do and how I engage in this world ripples out whether I want it to or not. From this perspective, that means that practicing for oneself and for others, it's actually already happening on a retreat like this. It's impossible for it not to happen. For example, just on a basic level, simply your willingness to be here on retreats, it's an offering to others. At least I know. I, I know quite a few people around this time of year will say something to me like, wow, just knowing people are sitting the three months at IMS, that supports my practice in the fall. And for some of you who've done the three-month retreat, maybe you've had those thoughts in the fall, knowing that there's this whole group of people carrying this tradition onward. I think it's important to remember this retreat here at IMS, it's, it's been going on now for nearly 50 years. And just the act of it, it does inspire practitioners. Like This retreat has been and continues to be such a cornerstone to this tradition. And some of you might have friends or colleagues or people from your sangha who are deeply moved by what you're doing here. It's an offering in that way. And it's true, there's other friends and colleagues that just think you're completely crazy. (laughs) But I'm trying to set that aside right now. (laughs) Just bringing this fact into your practice, into your heart, what I notice, it can allow me to step out of the narrow confinement that it's just about me. So confining, and then it gets tangled in these questions in a way when it's just about me. I, I get to enter into this vastness that's inherent in tradition that's, that's so much larger than my own life. This is Dharma practice as a kind of offering. And I think there's many ways of understanding this. I know sometimes for me, what's uh, relevant on a long retreat as it sometimes feels like, I don't know if you've had this feeling, especially with those knots and tangles, the, those difficult states of mind uh, that arise of kind of the lineage of those mind states. It's like here I have this family lineage of so much uh, of a particular kind of suffering that's still coursing through this heart and mind and body. And now, now I'm on retreat, and I can stop dynamics of heart and mind that have probably been going on for generations. What a beautiful thing to offer to the world, don't you think? To put an end to those dynamics, to allow for a different way of being in the world. This path and practice, it's so much larger than me and my life. 
It really is an offering. And again, coming back to simply being on this three-month retreat. When the British Empire colonized the area that we now call Myanmar or Burma, it was so interesting when I found out about this. One of the, the primary concerns of the Burmese people when this started to happen, the, the colonization of their land, their primary concern was not the oppression coming down on their personal lives. I'm sure that was in the mix, but it wasn't the primary concern. Rather, you know what their deep concern was? When colonization came, their deep concern is that it would be the end of this cycle of the Buddha's teaching. It would be the end of the Buddha sasana. Sasana being this epic of teaching. That's what was at the forefront of their hearts. And you can see many of their ways of trying to navigate the colonizers was around making sure that the Buddha Sasana could survive. And if you carry on into the 20th century, this this value, this ethos was still pervading Buddhist practice. This is much of this, this value of making sure the Buddha Sasana would continue was one of the main reasons why monasteries started to open up three-month retreats like this one to lay practitioners and encouraging meditation to continue the tradition so that colonization wouldn't decimate it. So this means that in Burma, now for so many decades now, Practitioners go on three-month retreat. This is kind of the, the heart of the Mahasi tradition, you know, the, the, the Mahasi center, the Mahasi uh, uh, yakta. It's, it's a massive place where so many people are doing retreat, three-month retreat at one time. This is in this particular lineage. That's a different feeling to do three-month retreat. Oh, I'm engaging in three-month retreat because it ensures the possibility of future practitioners being able to do a three-month retreat. Oh, this is why I'm engaged in this. There is a very different feeling to practice, at least for me, in my heart, if I'm practicing on retreat to continue this tradition of long, silent retreats. What would it be like to practice so that this door stays open for some practitioner in 200 years to, to attain kind of a full sense of awakening and freedom? Well, this is why I practice, for that one practitioner 200 years down the line. Or, oh, this is why I practice, because in 200 years there will be a community that fully awakens. That's so much vaster than my little life. Can you feel that? How it makes what we're doing here feel so different.
So to, in order to get a, a little bit more of a visceral taste of Dharma practice as offering, what I'll um, uh, be doing here in just a, a little while, in a few minutes, is I'm going to be playing a part of the Satipatthana Sutta being chanted. It'll just be uh, uh, opening the heart to this sutta being chanted. And, and a reminder, the Satipatthana Sutta, it's, it's the foundational sutta, it's the foundational text for the practice that we're engaged in here. As, as the sutta says, practitioners, this is the direct path. The direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And as you're opening, really in a simple way of simply feeling this chant, I I want to remind you that the chanting of the Satipatthana Sutta has been chanted in some form or another for 2,600 years, this chant that we'll be listening to. And as I said, it's been chanted by generation after generation of practitioner, of practitioners. And it's through that that, that we've been given these teachings. So when you listen to this chant in a, a little while here, you're, you're, what you're actually hearing is the love and compassion that thousands upon thousands of practitioners have had for you and for me. So intertwined with this tradition and so intertwined with all those generations of practitioners. And especially you here on this retreat, practicing this path and this practice. So I invite invite you to uh, at least give a space to allow it to touch your heart really in whatever way that aligns with how you find this path to be meaningful for you in particular. So I want to emphasize this. it doesn't matter if the meaningfulness that you're getting from this retreat is directly aligned with a classical Buddhist cosmology. Like, nobody knows, right? You can <laughs> claim what is ever most meaningful to your heart there. So it doesn't have to align. What is important is that it, it aligns with something that is deeply meaningful and alive for you in your own particularities. This is what it is to interact with tradition, to honor tradition, but then to allow it to speak to you in your own particularities. Okay, so we'll uh, begin it in just a minute. If you need to move your body a little bit or stretch a little bit so there's a sense of ease, and then it will come on here in just, just one minute here. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato 
निषीदति पल्लंकंगाभुजित्वा उजुंकायं पनिधाय परिमुखं Sato Rasang asa sami tipajanati Rasang wa pasa santo Rasang pasa sami tipajanati Sabakaya patisang vedi Asasisamiti sikhati Sabakaya patisangvedi Pasasisamiti sikhati Pasambhayankaya sankharang Asasisamiti sikhati Pasambhayankaya sankharang Pasasisamiti sikhati Seyatapi bhikkave Dakho bhamakaro va Bhamakarante vasiva Dīgaṁ vā anchanto dīgaṁ anchāmīti pajānāti Rasaṁ vā anchanto rasaṁ anchāmīti pajānāti Eva meva kho bhikkave bhikkhu Dīgaṁ vā asa santo dīgaṁ asa sāmīti pajānāti Dīgaṁ vā pasa santo dīgaṁ pasa sāmīti pajānāti Rasaṁ vā asa santo rasaṁ asa sāmīti pajānāti Rasangwa pasasanto rasang pasasamiti pajanati Sabkaya patisangvedi asasisamiti sikhati Sabkaya patisangvedi pasasisamiti sikhati Pasambhayang kaya sankharang Asachisamiti sikhati Pasambhayang kaya sankharang Asachisamiti
So once again, we'll have some chanting tonight and we'll interweave just a, a little bit of uh, sharing the merit. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.